Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. and welcome to our deep sea domain this is under consultation an episode by episode podcast type situation through the uk's greatest video game challenge tv show games master i am one of your hosts luke owen and i'm more exciting than being a tory mp and sat next to this right ned i am ash versus this episode aired on the 16th of january 1997 and lo we have a new number one at the top of the video game charts with destruction derby 2 while evita is still top of the box office and the spice girls are still top of the pops for just one more week uh pegging mania has run its course in the united kingdom for now yes tori amos to be uh, just around the corner is she an mp uh, i think so yeah i mean she might have done a better job anyway <laughs> Best thing is, I'm not even going to mention who's Prime Minister at the moment, because by the time this episode's released, that could have all changed. <laughs> Topical content. We actually don't have anything in the way of TV news, or but I don't think we've got much more to say about Evita or Two Become One. So, Ash, do you want to jump straight into the magazine? We're going to make two visits to the magazine this month, because in the news section, we do have something on Resident Evil 2, which will also be in the news section on the TV show. So I thought, let's go to the opposite end of the magazine. Let's go to the letters section. We haven't been there for a while. It's our first visit for 1997. Oh, and what a doozy we've got. We've got this letter titled, Stayin' Alive. Now, disclaimer, I am going to read this exactly as written. Mm -hmm. Dear Sir Slash Madam, how is the job? I hope by the grace of almighty living God it is going on a very well. By the way, I am a boy of 13 years of age and interesting with your magazine and I want you to send me magazine in which Peter Weller, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone in it and about them and if you can, send two or one copy and if you can, give me any magazine with question. Please can you give me any of the name which it is in the letter and give me their address. Please, 
who is the star of the week and if you can give me any castle of any of the star please i know you will do your possible best to give me one the lord almighty will bless you very much goodbye yours ever solomon p.s greetings from ghana be good and stay alive (laughs) okay so this will be an interesting reply i feel honestly i was ready to read this reply and have to put another disclaimer in but the reply is simply yes oh yes cheers write and tell us exactly what you want solomon mate (laughs) it's a strange thing because their reply doesn't really do anything but also that is a hell of a letter i mean leave it let's just remove aside the fact that english clearly a second or third language that's fine i'm not going to criticize that what magazine does solomon think he is writing to to ask for peter weller arnold schwarzenegger and sylvester stallone's home addresses hmm what magazine indeed maybe it maybe it is empire maybe he thinks that you know if they've got arnold and sly's address then they'll probably have peter weller's i yeah i'd say peter weller's are probably gonna have the address or peter weller feels like the most accessible of those three peter weller would be like yeah sure i'll i'll converse with solomon from ghana yeah why not Arnold will just try and sell him shares in Planet Hollywood. As well, probably Sly will, will try and <laughs> Sly will try and sell him his shares in Planet Hollywood. He'll try and sell him Frank Stallone's shares in Planet Hollywood, wanting nothing to do with his brother. Do you think then that he has misunderstood Peter Weller for Bruce Willis? And he's actually trying to get involved in the Planet Hollywood business? You know, poor Peter Weller. It's just like, oh, it's so exciting to meet you. I loved you in Die Hard. And Peter Weller's like that was bruce willis oh which one were you then i was i was robocop and i was also buckaroo banzai buckaroo what never heard of him mate this next one though is from a concerned saturn owner oh no not a concern <laughs> it's the jaguar of series six <laughs> wait until he sees the news about wh smith stopping stocking saturn he'll be in bricks is it going to be one of those letters that just lists a load of games coming out on the PlayStation and says, am I getting these on the Saturn? Oh, no, no, no. This is more a critique of the editorial style. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, oh, dear. <laughs> Titled, Add Enough, as in Adder, as in Fighting Vipers. That's kind of where this is going. Dear Games Master, I do buy your magazine from time to time for a fairly impartial view of current games. You can tell where the tone's going by the voice I've adjusted to for this. Just lately, I have been somewhat concerned at your Saturn reviews. Yes, I do own a Saturn, and yes, I am probably being a little defensive. You seem to be a little critical of the latest releases. Take Fighting Vipers, for example. The game is fantastic. It is, in my opinion, a lot more fun and even more impressive than Virtua Fighter 2. The graphics are incredible, as are the lighting effects, as are the options and sound. Have you reviewed an official UK copy? Look, Please try to be objective in your reviews and don't be swayed like everyone else by the PlayStation hype. In my opinion, the PlayStation and Saturn are equally competent machines, both offering excellent games. Mark Howard, Nuneaton, Walks. Honestly, that reads like YouTube comments that I get on reviews that I do. If you're vaguely critical of something that somebody really likes... Like in my workplace, you could replace some of those words with AEW and WWE and it would read exactly like a YouTube comment. Yeah, and I'm still pissed off you never reply to mine. <laughs> but Games Master Magazine replies, Well, Mark, unlike you, we do have to be objective. Being a multi-format magazine, we can't afford to be subjective in our reviews. However, when a beat-em-up comes in that isn't as good as a beat-em-up on the same system, we have to be honest. As stated at the time, 
we tackled the import version, but we have since played the UK PAL version and we're still happy with our score. Remember, 81% is still a very good score. It's a very good game. And yes, the PlayStation and Saturn are both equally capable of producing top entertainment. We know that. It's down to the software. This feels like a reply I would say on a podcast when people have a pop at me for my reviews. The more things change, the more they stay the same, Ash. Description for everyone else. Luke literally had his head in his hands. <laughs> it's like, it's I like... have said before in interviews, 81% is a very good score to give a show. <laughs> when people think I'm being negative about something, when I've given something four out of five, I'm like, four out of five is a good score. We've said here... With regards to game reviews, anything above 75% is worth a sniff. Also, I do actually appreciate they gave a very measured response. Much like you have to give very measured responses, where really what you want to do is tell that individual to do one. Yeah, get your head out your ass. It's not us that's got the bias, it would appear. The only addition I would make, and I think this is something which really is a hindsight issue. Both the Saturn and the PlayStation were equally good at producing entertaining video games. However, the PlayStation had the edge on 3D, the Saturn had the edge on 2D. That is, that's not even like a, a perspective thing, that's not even a bias, that is purely technical. That is, that, that is not opinion, that is counting. 2D fighters worked better on the Saturn than they did on the PlayStation. Even the pad on the Saturn lent itself more to fighting games of the 2D nature of the Street Fighter and Capcom variety than that on the PlayStation. That D-pad on the PS1, I maintain, is one of the worst D-pads for a fighting game. I hated it. Good evening and welcome to Games Master. Now, I'm sure it will come as no surprise at all to learn that I get quite literally thousands of letters a week from you, the viewers. Now, obviously, I'm far, far too busy to reply to them all, but rest assured, I do read all of them, and they touch me very deeply. One such letter is the reason why we only have one mermaid with us tonight, the lovely Leanne. How are you, Leanne? Are you not too lonely? No, Dominic, it means I've got you all to myself. It's another one of those episodes where Dom brags about the amount of letters he gets sent into his show. He reads one of them later. He doesn't open the show reading them. Instead, he shows us exactly what happens to the correspondence you send into this show. It's the same thing you do with YouTube comments. You print them out on paper and put them through a shredder. Oh, it is very, very satisfying. I love a paper shredder. Oh, when my parents got a paper shredder, because there was, you know, lots of stuff on the TV being like, they're stealing your bank details. So my parents bought a shredder and that's, oh, it was good. Satisfying that. Trying to put as much as you possibly can and just hear it slowly go, crunching it through. And also that all that fear, like, what if you got your tie caught in it? If you're wearing <laughs> a tie while sat at home shredding paper as a child. But one of these letters is the reason we only have Leanne as a mermaid tonight. And is she feeling lonely, Luke? Nah, she's all right. She gets Dom all to herself. Way hey, and indeed, the lads. Who was the writer on this show again? Oh, that's right. It's Dom. This as is we Tom learned later, yes. as we learned the other week, he writes all his own material. But that's a bit of a break from tradition. We're not jumping into our challenge right away. We're actually going straight to the news. And next year, make sure you get me a Buzz Lightyear toy. This is exclusive footage of Resident Evil 2 called Biohazard 2 in Japan on the PlayStation, the sequel to Capcom's gore masterpiece and contender for Game of 96. 
still very early in development. There's two new characters called Leon and Elsa. Trapped in Lacoon City Police Station, the heroes are up against another slew of zombies and a whole breed of new enemies. The characters can change their clothes throughout, donning bulletproof vests and fire suits when the need arises. The game's also one and a half times bigger than the original with much more rooms to wander and explore. It's scary. We can't wait. Oh, and what news to start with. It's the first footage of Resident Evil 2. And even though it's early doors for the game, very early doors, almost an entire development cycle to go until it's released, we see new, two new characters, Leon and Elsa, and a police station, changeable clothes, dogs, crows, and it's one and a half times bigger than the original, which is ironic because this isn't Resident Evil 2 at this point. This is what became known as Resident Evil 1.5. I wrote almost word for word that exact same thing of like, ironically, he says this is one and a half times bigger because this is, yeah, Resi 1.5. This is... I love this as a bit of a news item because I don't I don't think this gets talked about enough in terms of you know people's cataloging of Resi 2's development. This is like actual footage from the time period. This is like in location in time coverage of a game that will not come out and will then be later leaked and people will speed run it in this and the other as as a full game called 1.5. It's cool to see it in motion, in its time place, and you know, and I, and I, I absolutely adore that. The reason we have Resident Evil: The Director's Cut, the reason why we have arranged mode for the first Resident Evil game, is because of this. It's because of 1.5 and 1.5 not getting finished and not getting released, and so they didn't want to disappoint fans of the series. So we got the director's cut, and because they people had like absolutely nailed that direct uh, nailed the original version and knew exactly how to play it so as quick as time possible they were like well we'll shake things up a little bit to to reward those people who love the game so much so they made arranged modes where they move some of the weapons around sorry move some of the items around and move some of the baddies around as well without 1.5 director's cut doesn't exist and so it's a fascinating little piece I remember playing Director's Cut for the first time and encountering that kind of the things being in different places and that proper messes you up because when you've played a game as much as like a lot of us played that first Resident Evil, to suddenly have an enemy that was at point A come at you from point B, the first time at least, and even in fact the first couple of times because of course you've got it as almost muscle memory at that point, it's a real head f- It really is, yeah. It's why I, I particularly love uh, watching speedruns of games that are on random modes, like randomizers. Like watching Link to the Past randomizers or Super Metroid randomizers, I think are absolutely fascinating. And you can do that with Resi 1 and 2 and 3, like in the, the PlayStation era. Granted, like certain items have to be in certain places because you can't progress throughout the game without them. But yeah, I, just, I think they're they're really, really cool. And that's what, you know, the fun of arranged mode there. And some of the changes that they made in 1.5 though, like the, the, the zombies, you had a lower overall poly count which meant more of them could be on screen. And they, they were doing stuff to kind of really actually build up this concept of there being a mob or a horde of zombies. And they were so far along in this game when it was canned. It was like 60 to 80% complete. You can go onto YouTube and watch people do actual playthroughs of 1.5. I think there are people that speedrun it as well because you can get up to a certain point of it. I actually will quickly have a look to see if there's any times left on it. But, but while I'm looking that up, I believe you said that we've got something in the magazine about it. I mean, yeah, earlier this season, we had those kind of first few screenshots that appeared in Games Master magazine of the blue version of what was 1.5. But now we've got a kind of companion piece to this news article entitled Zombie Holocaust Capcom Reveal 1997 Bloodbath 
And the article says this past month has seen a veritable shop of blood, guts and undeads thrown about with the further showcasing of next year's Resident Evil 2 from Capcom. New features include the game being, as stated on the show, one and a half times bigger than its predecessor, more advanced AI with each zombie having a different movement pattern. Some even run. Crikey, you won't see that until Resident Evil 1 Remake. Far superior light sourcing and reflections and a variety of stunning new camera angles. More gore, although that may well be toned down for the European version. One such feature includes the fact that even if you blow a zombie in half, its body parts still move towards you. Gruesome stuff. A variety of clothes and suits that allow you to carry varying amounts of firepower, more realistic puzzles and a wider variety of tasks. The release date for Resident Evil 2 isn't yet clear, although Virgin, who will once again be marketing the title, believe it could be April if the censors don't step in first. Interesting note, according to Capcom, about 40% of the code has been done, so it's hoped it will hit Japan pre-Christmas at the time of going to press. Still, one look at these pictures is enough to tell you that whenever it appears, Resident Evil 2 is as sure as heck to be superb. And we get mostly pictures of Liza, actually. Liza facing off against zombie police, Liza examining a locker full of weapons, and Liza running away from the remains of a zombie corpse. In fact, I've just checked, there is no picture of Leon. It's all Liza in these pictures. It's an interesting note there that they were hopeful they could get it out by Christmas 1997, because credit to them, the full version of Resident Evil 2, the actual version of Resident Evil 2, comes out by January 98. So they weren't far off even building a whole new game. But it wasn't without cost, because there's a little box out we also have In order to focus more on the upcoming Street Fighter and Resident Evil titles, Capcom have scrapped two games that have been in development for ages. The first is the RPG Werewolf for the Saturn. It was based on a popular card game in the States. No way! Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Well, it would have been if it had come out. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other title that has received the sharp end of the Capcom knife is Major Damage, which was a rendered side-scrolling fighting affair for both the PlayStation and the Saturn. So they can two games to try and keep Resi 2 on target. And even then, it wasn't enough. And I suppose that makes sense, like, for Capcom to be putting so much focus on Resi 2, because, like, I mean, as Dom said in that news piece there, it was a mega hit for them in 96. You know, he calls it a masterpiece, which I actually completely agree with. So if you're Capcom, yeah, you've got to be looking to the next version of that. You're looking to the sequel of that. I think it's it's mad impressive that they effectively scrap everything that they did with 1.5 and retooled it to give us the actual version of Resident Evil 2. But I would really, really like, and if I was Capcom, I'd be putting some money behind this, a remastered version of 1.5, I think would be a really interesting curio and thing to do. Like, granted, it doesn't work within the 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 plots that they have got, the overarching plot they've got for Resident Evil, which I'm sure they believe makes sense. But I think as a fun little, you know, dream sequence sequel, I think them releasing 1.5 is actually a pretty easy win for them. I mean, who knows? They aren't afraid to mine Resident Evils of the past. Who knows what they've got up their sleeve? I mean, hey, we are days away from a Silent Hill announcement. So who knows what is possible over the next couple of years? Anything can happen. Yeah, they're not afraid to reference either because, like, you know, Elsa Walker's costume is in Resident Evil 2 Remake. It's one, yeah. of, uh, it's one of Claire's unlockables. But just one last note on uh, the Werewolf game. It was known as Werewolf the Apocalypse and was an overhead isometric 3D brawler. Players could choose from one of seven characters, including characters from the tabletop game, 
and do battle with typical werewolf foes like Fomori, Black Spiral Dancers and Banes. It was never finished and only an early and very rough prototype has ever been seen publicly. So this was a game that was just canned. It wasn't just for the Saturn, apparently, though. The magazine was wrong in that. There was also a PlayStation version planned. If, like me, you've been waiting for video game publishers to stop faffing about basing games on exciting multi-million pound action movies and look instead to adverts for their inspiration, then breathe a sigh of relief. Animal, released on PC next month, is an adventure game where you control the star of the Pepper Army adverts. Uh, Pepper Army. Play guitar. Get beaten up. And go mad with a liquidizer. It's more exciting than being a Tory MP. Slightly different end of the spectrum here in terms of games that are hailed as absolute classics versus games that no one absolutely remembers whatsoever. We have a game based on the Pepper Army mascots. Specifically, the Pepper Army mascot voiced by one Adrian Edmondson. And as soon as I saw this game, I was just like, oh yeah, Eddie was the voice of Pepper Army. I remember the bit of an animal adverts now. And I actually remember this game. I don't think I ever played it. I think there was a demo of some sort on like a PC cover disc at some point. But I remember this advertising campaign because this, to a degree, was almost as controversial as the Tango ads. What a waste. I always get my five a day. <laughs> Pepper Army. It's a bit of an animal. It was very anarchic. It was very naughty. You know, yeah, it was very loud. juvenile, loud, laddish. And it, and it was Aid Edmondson being full on, like, 100% Aid Edmondson. It was Eddie, it was Vivian, it was the Dangerous Brothers. It was kind of all of those aspects of Aid Edmondson's character ramped up to 100 with the filter taken off. And it was a lot of fun. And actually, I almost see this making more sense as a mascot-related game than Cool Spot or Fido Dido because they were just literally marketing material. They had no character behind them. Whereas Pepper Army had a voice, had a personality, had little narratives within within his adverts. Oi! Come back and finish me off, you wimp! What's the matter? Do spicy for ya! Pepper Army. It's a bit of an animal. My dad absolutely loved those Pepper Army adverts. He'd always say, like, oh, it's a bit of an animal. Like, he, he thought they were really funny. The, the plot of the game as well is, it is bonkers. I, I will read it uh, as, as it is written. This surreal adventure takes place in the town of Snackopolis, where tensions between cookies, vegetables, and other snack creatures is on the rise. Just before the mayoral election, the current mayor and top candidate, Dr. Pepperinstein, is kidnapped while he is cloning Pepper Army. In addition, the cloning device was tampered with, with horrible results. As Pepper Army, a walking and talking sausage, you investigate and seek to rescue the mayor and to clean up the mess left from the cloning. It almost sounds like a side plot from Adventure Time, just the idea of there being anthropomorphic foods and snacks, which is very much reminds me of Princess Bubblegum and stuff like that. But, you know, instead of a couple of plucky heroes, you've got a meat stick. Yes, who is very, very anarchic. It's kind of like, what was that movie that came out many many years ago that was like the sort of 10 years they lost all the footage or the footage was all stolen and stuff and it's all based on mascots food fights 
Uh, and if you've never heard of Food Fight, look it up. It is a disastrous little movie with a fascinating production history. But yeah, it's kind of that same sort of thing. I have not played this game. I don't have many memories of it either. I don't think I even played a demo. There's not a lot written about it online. So I'd be, I'd be curious to, to check it out because it's got two different styles of gameplay. It's a point and click adventure while also having Doom-style levels within it as well. Just reading the description of like over 130 hand-painted locations used as settings for around the city, plus the Doom-type levels, it feels like whilst there were a lot of kind of tie-in games that appeared, we've already mentioned a couple of them, and there was a lot of kind of promotional freebies as time went on. I mean, let's not forget Mick and Mac, Global Gladiators. This feels like quite a bit of care and attention went into it, more perhaps than it deserved. So I would be very curious to see how this holds up, if it holds up at all. It may look, smell and taste like a PlayStation, but it's in fact a Eurosa. Exactly the same, but it's programmable. Connect it to your PC, and if you are a programmer and know a bit of C++, that's a programming language, kids, you too can write your own PlayStation games. Japan has got bonkers over it, with clever clogs and wannabe Tekken 2 writers swapping their fledgling gaming creations and programming tips via the internet. It's released here next month, costing 500 quid. And our last news item here is something that we touched upon a few episodes back, because uh, it was in the magazine. The Eurosa, the, uh, the, the, the very sexy-looking black PlayStation. And this is cool, you know, Dom's talking about how over in Japan they've gone absolutely bonkers for it, and it's going to be here next month. Yeah, all you need to do is have a net Eurosa, a PC, and the ability to program in C++. Easy. Easy stuff. Now, before the news, I was telling you about the letters. We received many of them are letters of admiration, letters of encouragement, even cries from the heart like this one. Dear Dominic, I am a boy from a desperately low-income working-class background like yourself. My parents have to struggle to make ends meet, and I myself have been sweeping chimneys since the age of two. I have dreamed that one day I could afford to play the arcade driving game Ridge Racer in my local arcade. Could you use your undoubted wealth and influence to make this possible? And maybe I could have a photo of one of the mermaids too. Please, 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 it would bring a tiny bit of happiness into my otherwise unhappy life. Yes, hopefully, Peter Ball, age nine and three quarters. Well, Peter, I'm glad to say the answer is no. But I'm sure you'll be chuffed to know that we have actually picked another child entirely at random and put him on the same game with one of the mermaids sitting next to him. So keep those letters coming. I absolutely adored and laughed out loud with this gag. This idea that Dom has got this touching letter from this working class chimney sweep. You know, it's got a similar background to what Dom has had. He's had this one big dream, just to play Ridge Racer with one of the mermaids. Oh, Dom, if only you could use your immense wealth to make this happen. And they can, for someone else. But keep those letters coming. Funny enough, it's the exact same challenge with the exact same aged boy in almost the exact same location. So we can make dreams come true, just not for you, little one. Now get back to my chimneys. <laughs> thought it was a really, really good gag. Like the music, the record scratch, I thought everything worked in it brilliantly. It was perfectly pitched and put together. But there's the letter. What's the challenge? My contestant challenge on this full-scale version of Ridge Razor is completely simple. Finish in the top three after two laps or face abject failure. I have not felt the need to introduce any further impediments as my contestant already faces the handicap of having legs far too short to reach the pedals of this oversized racer. 
However, I'm sure my mermaids can give him a little extra length if he comes up short. Good luck. So we're playing Ridge Racer here. You've got to finish in the top three places after two laps or lose the challenge completely. But this isn't just any old version of Ridge Racer. This is Ridge Racer Full Scale. Ridge Racer Full Scale. So there was already a number of arcades out there that offered Ridge Racer Multi-Monitor, where the idea is you had three monitors. This was that even bigger scale. You sat in a real car and you kind of had a full... 120 degree field of view this was actually three copies of ridge racer running in sync and there was a switch on each one where one would go all right i'm center another one would go right i'm left and the third one would go oh i'm right and then they would all keep in sync and be showing the exact same amount of data which meant you ended up with this beautiful panoramic view of the game and there was even a few changes within the game because they changed the car models to reflect the car that you would be driving in the real world. I think there's still one at Blackpool Pleasure Beach. There's certainly one owned, I think, up at Blackpool. Because that was that was the one I could find. Like the, the one they got here in Harrow, I, I didn't see much of, but like the one I've seen a few people blogging about that they went to Blackpool Pleasure Beach in search of playing Ridge Racer full scale. I think this one, because I found reference to an amusement arcade in northwest London called The Edge. And I'm just looking at a map and I'm going, maybe? But it was a, it was a, if it is that arcade, it was a huge arcade. I found a post online from a previous staff member who said, yeah, we had that. We had Prop Cycle, Top Skater, Twin Sit Down, GTI Clubs, Gun Played. And they even, like, on their launch day, they got in a couple of gladiators to do meet and greets. Oh, that's cool. Because this is, this is a massive, massive machine. It's huge screens, huge panoramic, three big things. But it's a full-size car. This is literally a Mazda MX-5 that has been taken off the production line. If you put an engine into this, it would be a road-legal car. That's the actual size that we're looking at here. It's got steering wheel. It's got brakes. It's got accelerators. It's got the gear change. It's got the handbrakes. It's got, literally, you are driving a car at a big panoramic screen. It looks awesome. I was reading a, an article or a blog about this, about someone who was kind of tracking down various arcades and stuff and he was following the adventures of this lad called jason who was attempting world records on every version of ridge racer that he could find to submit to guinness and to twin galaxies and stuff and this was like his big one to go after because he's done it on all the other versions of ridge racer and so they went to blackpool pleasure beach to attempt the world record they had to convince pleasure beach to allow guinness and twin galaxies to come down and record it Unfortunately, the, the footage of it doesn't exist, but he is still on the Twin Galaxies pages having the world records on Ridge Racer full scale. Not on the Guinness world records, that, that belongs to someone else, but if gone to Twin Galaxies, he is still the world record holder. Uh, I'll just read this passage here because this gives you a real indication of like what it is like to be in this thing. The game is played in front of a 10 feet wide front projected triple screen with the wheel, gear sticks and pedals functioning as the controls. The ignition key is used to start. The speed and RPM gauges are functional, and fans blow wind on the player from inside air vents. Speakers concealed inside the car provide realistic engine and tire sounds. Overhead speakers pump surround music towards the player. That sounds like a really awesome immersive thing. It looks fantastic, and it is great. I mean, I, there are pictures out there of this, but there aren't many bits of video footage of it actually being played, so it's really nice to have this here, and also the fact that we don't just have kind of over-the-shoulder footage, but they actually managed to capture the video out of the machine, although I'm guessing they've only actually captured the centre 
Yes, I would say so, yeah. But as impressive as the machine is, the way we are introduced to our competitor here, Ryan, is absolutely brilliant. And Ryan is a proper little star in the making. Yeah, I get the feeling he's probably one of the drama school kids. So let's go over live to Harrow to find the younger Ryan Wheeler, who's in the protective custody of Teresa at this moment. Hello, Ryan. Ryan, you're a big fan of mine, yeah? Yeah, real big. Okay, Ryan, you're playing a ridge racer. What are you like at driving games? Um, I'm quite good, but I'm a bit of a wild hog. And I hear you think your gran uh, would be good for me. Yeah, because she likes him young and cheeky. That's excellent. And uh, Ryan, is it true you are actually a 70-year-old man trapped in the body of a nine-year-old? Yeah, it all happened in a lab. <laughs> Excellent, Ryan. Right now, Teresa, you're no stranger to uh, leather, so you're going to join him in the passenger seat. Oh, yeah. He's going to look after me. to make sure I don't crash. Yeah, we cut in on him calling Dom a right Ned, an ugly little goggle-eyed git. Ryan could beat him any day. Oh, hi, Dom. Big fan. Big, big fan. The, the gag we have at the end of that is is also pretty excellent. It's really funny that they're playing with the idea that Dom can hear him, but he can't hear them. I, I actually thought it was really funny. And the kid's a good little performer as well. And Teresa is really playing up to it and is clearly having a fair old giggle herself. I mean, in fairness, he was created in a lab, so he must be fairly cute to, uh, to be around. Yep, a 70-year-old man trapped in the body of a child. You can tell this is a proper amusement arcade. You can hear someone playing air hockey in the background. You can hear that tink, 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 tink. I also forgot to mention as well in Games Master's introduction of this that the reason why Teresa is there with him is to give him a bonus so he can reach the pedals because he's so, he's so small he might not be able to. <laughs> apparently erections make his legs longer. Apparently so. Apparently so. But that's what that's why Teresa is there. I'm joined by Czechoslovakia's finest Kirk Ewing. Kirk, what kind of car seat cover do you favour? Well, I prefer a leopard car seat cover. Uh, that's the ones that are especially used by metro drivers. Okay, and as far as advice for Ryan goes, what would you recommend he does? Well, okay, this is Ridge Racer as uh -huh. uh, the perennial favourite. What you want to do is get your foot to the floor, right? Stay in the slipstream of the cars, overtake fast, get there before third position, and don't forget to get the car keys back in the mantelpiece before your dad comes home. I was sad that there was no love or jokes about the beaded car seat cover. Or even Metro from last week's episode. I mean, what would you cover Metro with? That would I think you'd have to give him a, a beaded cover so there's air holes. I reckon they would have loved to have done this in studio, but there was no way this was ever going to get done in studio. Especially as the studio is a church. Exactly, yeah. This was never going to work in there, but it's, it's cool that we've got this little link-up thing that they're doing as, as live, uh, so to speak. I, it, it's a really fun visual. And then because of the game that it is, it's kind of spectacular in a way. I feel bad for saying this because he's nine years old and legitimately he's probably having a bit of a hard time reaching the pedals. I kind of wish the gameplay was a bit better because this is an amazing machine to see in action. It's an amazing spectacle. I mean, Ridge Race is a great game to begin with and you see it on this scale and it just takes it to an entirely different level. But bloody hell, this kid does struggle on the corners quite a bit throughout this challenge. Yeah, there's the story of this challenge is because he's got to start, he's got to end in third by the end of the second lap. And he starts in 13th. And the story of the race is 
he climbs to fifth or sixth, then hits a wall, drops back to seventh and eighth. And that happens throughout the entire thing, right up until the very end, effectively, when he just sneaks through and manages to get into that third position. But a lot of it is just taking a bump, hitting another car, taking a corner badly, and dropping down a few places. But because it's, it's not great games playing, it does actually ramp up the tension of this because it really is in that last moment, that last turn, that last straight where he does win the challenge. When he makes it, it's a glorious moment because it's it, last week we had snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. This time it really is snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. Also, some great inappropriate jokes from Kirk and Dom as Kirk says, nice chopper, and Dom says thanks. And then they question, is Keith Chegwin in the chopper? I mean, I also love the references to the Dartford Tunnel in this a tunnel that I do drive past on my way to work. I, I think the the most like striking part of this in terms of the story that, the, the, that he has throughout his challenge is that he makes it to third at one point and then takes a hit and drops back down to seventh. And then you've got the, one of those great lines from Dominic Diamond where it's like, well, it's not looking good for him now, setting up that in case he does win, it looks like it feels like an amazing comeback. Yeah, he makes it into third. And then it's just a case of can he hold the acceleration? Can he accelerate faster than the cars that are right on his heel and just make it to the end? And he does. But oh, I was edge of seat. Even watching the second or third time, I was leaning forward in my seat going, come on, kid, you can do this. And he makes it. He gets a peck on the cheek from the myrrh and gives a cheeky little wink to the camera. It's a big old, like he gets a kiss and a big old thumbs up to the camera because he won. Really, really fun stuff, that. Okay, congratulations, Ryan. It was a bit hairy at the end, though. You were in sixth place right up to the final bend. Yeah, well, I had to really turn to get past them last two cars, but I finally got in third position. Okay, and uh, Teresa, how was your ride? Uh, very exciting. I think he's definitely going to be the next Damon Hill, a real pro. Right, sure. now, now, Ryan, did have Teresa sitting next to you, was that a distraction? No, I could cope with it fine. It was just lovely. And was having Teresa next to him a distraction? No, he could handle himself just fine. It was lovely. <laughs> it was lovely. That was a strange one. That was one where I'm thinking he forgot what he was meant to say there. It was probably not quite so nice as that, but it was what it was. And not only that, but as he mentioned earlier, he's going to hook up Dom with his gran. Not only good racing, lovely granny action on the side. Yep, and the last word goes to Ryan. Told you he was a right git. I thought it was tremendous. It's not the best Ridge Racer playing that we have had on Games Master, but I think the spectacle of it, the fun of it being a link-up challenge, and the kid himself, and Teresa being there, it's a really, really good challenge, that. I, I had a really good time with that one. It's also one of those things that we've not really had since Series 4, the fun of seeing the kind of the construct of the Games Master Studio outside in the real world, like when we had the goblins going out and about at Christmas, and now Teresa's there. And weirdly, I think whilst it would have been nice if all of them had been there, if Dom had been there in person with Kirk, I think there is something quite cool, to, and also giving Teresa more to do, which is nice. You know, we were putting over the idea at the start of Series 6, Teresa and Leanne always had a joke. Like they have, you know, they even had a sort of a yin and yang thing of one likes nice and fluffy things, the other one likes murder. But we haven't had a lot of that really since the early days of series six, where they really, since about episode four or five, they have just been standing there and handing out joysticks uh, in more ways than one, you might say. But like this is 
getting Teresa out. She gets to have some lines of her own. And also, because Teresa's not there, it gives Leanne something to do on set. I, I, I think it works nicely. And like you say, like it would have been cool to see everyone there and you know them doing the whole episode from this arcade in Harrow or what have you. But you then wouldn't have the fun communication stuff with Dom, you know, the, the fun delay and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, like, I, I think it really, really works as a challenge. In the old 8-bit days, there was a stunning game called Speedball. Riot proves that in spite of new technology, they can still rip things off. Riot is similar to Speedball in that it's a futuristic violent sport. The idea is you pick up the plasma ball, take it to one end of the pitch and charge it up with your team's colour and then throw it into the giant goal which is floating above the ring. While you're playing, the fans throw on power-ups which you can pick up to give yourself more speed, more health and even power punch and power shots. Firstly, the whole pitch is 3D. Secondly, eight players can simultaneously play. The ball itself uses lens flare style techniques brilliantly. It glows on the screen. Riot's a little bit slow for my liking, but overall it's good fun. Best features are that you've got the excellent multiplayer mode and you can let off air horns all the way through just to annoy your opponent. First up in the reviews here, do you remember Speedball? But what if it was in 3D? Huh? Wouldn't that be fun? Ish. It is very much a Speedball 2 kind of rip-off, although they, they have done a little bit to try and make it its own like you don't it's not a traditional football pitch type arrangement it's actually a case of you've got to grab a ball charge it then go for a central kind of goal slash basket and it was known as riot in some places league of pain in the other it was developed by beyond reality and psygnosis it's very much a game i think i forgot about until i saw it i'm i don't think i played the 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 full release again it might have been a demo it might have been an in-store but when i was seeing it being played i was just like Oh, yeah. Yeah, I kind of remember that. That rings a bell. And you can customize, trade players between the teams. There's like 16 different international teams like the New York Knights, the LA Lasers, the Tijuana Tyrants, the London Royals, because of course, the Liverpool Dockers, I think that's quite a good one, the Leningrad Reds, the Moscow Maulers, the Osaka Comets, the Tokyo Tornadoes, the Melbourne Destroyers, some of these names work better than others, but some of them really do land in a very stereotypical way. Yeah, that Melbourne Destroyers one's very lazy. Sydney Sentinels, I'm supposed, oh, sir, sir, I suppose I see that kind of going there. But yeah, Leningrad Reds, I'm like, well, that is very stereotypical. Berlin Breakers, I suppose, breaking the Berlin Wall, that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. They needed 16 teams, and some of them came easy, and others were a case of, we have countries in one hat, we have words in the other, Let's just make them work. But this entire review is essentially them going, it's like Speedball 2. That's exactly it, because like Dom's intro says, back in the day, there was a game called Speedball. Now it's here in 3D. And the first thing Ed says, yeah, you can rip things off. And this is basically Speedball. I mean, they do big up the 3D pitch, the fact that you can have eight players simultaneously. Also, the ball glows. This comes down to another game that they rate quite highly based on its multiplayer content. That's what I was going to say as well. We had this last week with Trash It, I think it was called, where it's just like, you know, the single player is okay, but it's got a cool multiplayer in it. And that is Games Master's flavor of the month at the moment. If your game has got a half-decent multiplayer, you're going to get a half-decent score. Like 79% isn't a blowaway score or anything like that. But it is certainly, as we've mentioned on this before, it's certainly a recommend. It's certainly a look into. It's certainly worth a rental, particularly if you've got some mates coming around. Or if you really like constantly firing an air horn, which you do here in the game footage, 
constantly throughout this review. Destruction Derby 2 is the cunningly titled sequel to Destruction Derby 1, and it took them three months to think up that title. The main difference between this game and the first Destruction Derby is a completely new, real 3D engine. Before, the cars would only ever spin left and right, but now they can flip over backwards, forwards, any, any way possible. The tracks are now a lot better as well. They're wider for a start, giving you much more room to manoeuvre, and they've got banked corners, jumps, slopes, ramps, everything. This time, the arenas are huge. You get four in total, but the actual first one is fantastic. There is a big lump right in the middle of the arena, and if you hit the lump, you fly hundreds of feet up into the air. The handling of the actual cars is far better than before, and overall the game's much better and much more fun. Up next, we saw this last week, it's Destruction Derby 2, which took them, can you believe, a whole three months to come up for that title. The review here is basically talking about how it's no longer like 2Ds, 2D sprites into a 3D world. This is now like an actual 3D engine. So these are 3D models, so that when you do hit something, you fly up in the air and you spin around this and the other, which we saw last week uh, in the Celebrity Challenge. And that's what they clearly love here. Like, Rick loves the big hump in that Destruction Bowl that we saw last week because he's just talking about how, like, the arenas are huge. There's this big hump in the middle, so you get to fly up in the air and you get to spin around and stuff. It's the sort of thing that people would love about burnouts, you know, like rather than playing through the single player, mm. just playing through the destruction modes or like how much chaos can you cause? That's the sort of thing that I feel that Games Master's leading more towards here. Like Rick and Ned, that's the, that's the thing that they really, really like. I feel there is some language confusion here, though, when they talk about things being 2D and 3D, because technically the first Destruction Derby was completely 3D. The models were 3D, the cars were 3D. What we are talking about more is in a gameplay sense, wherein... You've got an X and a Y and a Z axis. And in the original Destruction Derby, your damage and physics only occurred on the X and Y. The Z axis did not come into play. And here, the Z axis is what we saw in the challenge last week as you go poinging into the air and flying into the wild blue yonder. But here they just go, well, it's 2D and 3D, which is confusing because particularly at the time, a lot of the use of 2D and 3D was used to differentiate between sprite and pixel-based games and polygonal games. So it's a little bit confusing, even though I know what they're getting at. I know what they're driving at, so to speak. No pun intended. Oh, no, every pun intended. It does cause a little bit of confusion, I guess. If you're just watching this fresh at the time, you might not get what they're meaning. I, I suppose, but I think it's also a way to explain it in layman's terms that the cars now look and feel and roll around in a 3D setting. Like, I I, I, I mean, I'm not a person that particularly understands a lot of, like, the inners, and I, and I certainly wouldn't pretend to understand, like, the inner workings of a game in this and other models and whatnot. But I got what they meant. I think they, they certainly explained it in a, a layman's enough stance. That I was like, okay, cool. I get what they mean by that. This is not, like, it doesn't feel like Mario Kart on the Super Nintendo or something like that, or Street Racer. This feels like an actual... 3D model that can spin around in, in three dimensions. But, I mean, if you're going to play a classic Destruction Derby, this is the one to play. 100%. Like, this is the one, I think we talked about this when Destruction Derby came out. I think this is the one that everyone got into. Destruction Derby was fun, but everyone got on board with Destruction Derby 2. As we said at the top of the show, it's currently the top game in the video game charts. And I would argue that when people think nostalgically of Destruction Derby, they're actually thinking of the second one most of the time, even if they just remember it as the first. Yeah, 100%. Everybody's always known that Peter Gabriel was barking mad and pretentious, but with his new multimedia title, Eve, can he add pish to those attributes? You have bits like a big piece of mud and some fish and some naked people. 
You move your blue pointer around. When it changes yellow, you press the button. Then you move on to the next screen. Okay, so later on you get to mix some Peter Gabriel music and videos around, but who cares? It's just too mad for me, and I'm a Pink Floyd fan. I'm not strictly sure this is a game at all. It's more like a multimedia experience completely. But Peter Gabriel is a nutter if he thinks we're all going to buy this. Art, for art's sake, is not good enough. Not on PC CD-ROM. Speaking of things that are difficult to explain in layman's terms... A Peter Gabriel game? Question mark? The line of this review here for me, which sums up sort of my feelings on this, which is, it's art for art's sake. You know, he gets a bad score here. 51% that this got. This is not good enough to be a CD-ROM game. And you want to talk about sort of like the differences of opinions of this game. You've got Rick and Ed here being like, this is too mad. This is not good enough to be a CD-ROM game. This is art for the sake of art on one hand. And then on the other hand, you've got this game won the Millador Grand Prize at Cannes 1996, a place that is celebratory of art for the sake of art. So those are the two scales there. It depends on which side of it you fall on. And despite being a Pink Floyd fan, Ed falls on the other side. Exactly. Against Master's very much on the, this is not an actual game. Whereas Cans is more like, but look how pretty it is. Look how different it is. This is definitely winning an award. I do love some of the contemporary reviewed quotes, though, with GameSpot calling it a lavishly constructed audiovisual tour, but no more enriching than a day spent watching MTV. And Eric Reppen of Game Informer saying, the bizarre and surrealistic scenes shocked my monkey, but it wasn't <laughs> much of a game. And I'm just like, wow, you really shoehorned in that Peter Gabriel reference with a sledgehammer. Hey. Hey. He's on form today, everyone. Yeah, I'm letting off some steam. That was another Peter Gabriel song. I actually quite like Peter Gabriel as a musician. I'm not sure I'd spend time with this. I mean, I am a Pink Floyd fan. I think it's been mentioned a couple of times. I also really do like the solo work of Peter Gabriel, and I think particularly his live tours are quite spectacular. But this just looks too weird. I think if they'd marketed it as a interactive CD-ROM experience rather than trying to market it as a game. It would have been a difference in pitch, a difference in tonality. It probably wouldn't have been reviewed on Games Master. You know, it would have probably still landed its target audience and also awards and nominations and all that jazz. I think it would have ended up as a feature as opposed to a review, like we had with Director's Chair a few episodes back. Yeah. As the reviewers say with their 51%, art for art's sake is not good enough. And that's why we still, as two fully grown adults, make joystick jokes here on Under Consultation. Little Ronnie Reviews bottom firmly smacked there. At this point, I'd like you to consider the magnificence of the first half of tonight's show during this commercial break. Crush, forty sweet and sour tracks on one delicious double album including the brilliant new hits from Baby Bird and Suede. Plus Pulp, Oasis, Radiohead and Dodgy. Ash and Cast. Crush, a heartbreakingly good album. Out now on double CD and cassette. Whisper Gold, Cadbury's Whisper Chocolate with Golden Caramel. How do they do that? Well, I don't know, but they must have invented a caramel-putting-in machine, I suppose. Oh, that's marvellous, isn't it? 
At Sainsbury's, you can exchange your reward points for money off your shopping. But there are other ways to use your vouchers and make your points go even further. Brilliant film, Dad. In just three shopping trips, we got four free cinema tickets. It's very convenient. For 250 points, I got five pounds off all this dry cleaning. It's four hours of free local BT calls at the weekend. I give mine to the NSPCC and Sainsbury's match them pound for pound. <laughs> We were amazed how quickly we collected our air miles. David and I got engaged in Paris. So, here we are again. The reward card. There's more point to it at Sainsbury's. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Vegetables don't have feelings. <laughs> well, eventually. Pepperoni. It's a bite of an animal. Fry your chicken breast, then add the lean and pear Worcestershire sauce mixture. The Worcestershire sauce works like an instant marinade. Mm-mm. Good old New Orleans honey glazed chicken. You sure you want none now? Leon Perrin's Worcestershire sauce, the instant marinade. On February the 5th, it's Wednesday. The first National Lottery midweek draw with a guaranteed jackpot of £10 million. It's you. One day I'll meet my Prince Charming. It's me! It's me! It could be you. Welcome back. I hope your toilet trip was as successful and fulfilling as mine. And Dom hopes we've had a good shit like he has. I mean, I'm freshly bowel moved. How about you, Luke? Yeah, well, we just had a nice break uh, between records. When I say that, we've literally had a break between us recording the first half of this episode and this half, like a good couple of hours in a way. 
gave me just enough time. You know, you have to settle, you have to get, you have to choose an appropriate book. You have to make sure you've got the appropriate reading material. I myself am working my way through the works of James Herbert, which will scare the shit out of you if you read them in an appropriate lighting situation. I have been doing my due diligence because I said earlier in this episode, I'll just check what the speed running record is for Resident Evil 1.5. And I now have the answer. The current world record is 36 minutes and 19 seconds. That's pretty impressive for any Resident Evil game that is of that era. It shows you just how complete the game really was. If you're speed running it and it's nearly 40 minutes... You could probably get a good hour out of it if you're just playing it casually. Anyway, I think that's enough chat about shits and Resident Evil 1.5. Let's get into our celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? Now, a year never passes without a new game featuring my old chum, Sonic. And I'm pleased to say this year is no exception in the form of Sonic 3D on the Mega Drive. My contestant's challenge will be to guide Sonic to rescue five flickies trapped by Robotnik inside evil metal robots. Smash the enemies to release the poor creatures, then guide them to the end of the level. To spice things up, I'll impose a time limit of two minutes. Ooh, I do so love being masterful. Speaking of shit. Yeah. Look, I uh, we, we talked about this a little bit last week because it was previewed for the Sega Saturn. I am no real fan of Sonic 3D Blast. I by no means think it's a terrible game. Uh, it's actually a, a, a totally fine game. Like this was designed to be the swan song to Sonic on the Mega Drive. The character that made the Mega Drive. The Mega Drive sold lots of units because Sonic was so great and Sonic 2 was even better and Sonic 3 was even better. And then if you combine it with Ant Knuckles, it's even better. It has been a classic trilogy slash quadrilogy that has really personified the Mega Drive. That's why no one really talked about this one because it's a bit cack. And the reason why it's a bit cack, as we talked about last week, it's a 3D Sonic game, but still asks you to do 2D Sonic things. And the two just, they don't meet. Like, if you want to ask, why didn't they release a Sonic game for the Sega Saturn? And the answer is kind of shown you here, because Sega didn't know what to do with the character. They could not figure out how to put this 2D character into a 3D world. I mean, I'm a Sonic Adventure 2 apologist. I liked Sonic Adventure 2. Yeah, I, I think the Sonic Adventure games are pretty much the only good examples, I think, of 3D Sonic games. We, we talked about this about in the, the, the Dave Perry episode, that Dave's complaint about Mario 64 is that it didn't reinvent the wheel, but it actually did. Like, Nintendo looked at Mario 64 and said, well, we can't just do Mario again because those were 2D games and this is a 3D game. We need to completely change up how this works. And I just don't think Sega did the same thing. Sega looked at Sonic in a third dimension and just said, well, just do what you do in all Sonic games. But we'll change it up slightly that you're not just beating up badniks for no reason. You're doing this to save the flickies and you collect the flickies and then you run up to a ring and then you deposit the flickies. They're basically just doing fetch quests and then you do a boss at the end of it. 
it doesn't feel like it's a, a real Sonic game anyway. And then it's just not a particularly fun one off the back of it. And I think when you watch Bear Van Beers play this game, you can see the struggles that anyone has when you first pick it up and try and have a go at it. It says a lot that when you talk about non-standard Sonic games of this era, people talk more fondly about Dr. Robotnik's Mean Beam Machine. And Sonic Spinball. Sonic Spinball. Game Gear and Master System Sonic titles get more love than poor old Sonic Blast, 3D, Flicky's Island, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, like, I I don't want to be really sour on Sonic 3D, but I do, like, remember at the time. Because, you know... At this point as well, everyone's talking about the PlayStation, less so the Saturn, you know, or PC gaming, that sort of thing. And I, I'm still a little ways off from having a PC in the home and really getting into PC gaming. And I'm a couple of years off from getting my PlayStation. So this for me is like the big game. And I just remember playing it and feeling very disappointed by it and just being like, it's just not as fun. It's cool seeing Sonic in a 3D environment, so to speak, even though it's isometric view, which is pretty standard, really. It never made me want to go back and pick it up and play it again. Sonic Spinball did, because while frustrating, and Sonic Spinball is incredibly frustrating, I could still, I got it. And I could see the, the, the purpose of it, and I could see the reason to play it more. I never really got that with Sonic 3D. As I've said before, I've not really played this game and sadly whilst we did have a considerable break between recording the two halves of this episode not considerable enough for me to boot up the saturn and have a bit of a go of it because the extension lead just doesn't reach the toilet i'm still keen to give it a go because i kind of look at it and i'm like you you are the red-headed stepchild of this franchise particularly at this time it looks like you could do with some love and i want to be the person that goes you know what it's not that bad but i reckon i'm gonna play it and go Ooh, this is a rough one. You want to be the person that that I am for Sonic Spinball, because I am a Sonic Spinball apologist. Everyone dogs on that game for being the frustrating, not very good game that it is. But I am a Sonic Spinball apologist. I bought the record recently uh, that uh, the data discs put out, because I think the soundtrack's great. I don't think I can be that for Sonic 3D Blast. It's so funny, isn't it? Because you mentioned that it's it's the red-headed stepchild, uh, to use that parlance. But, like, I think now Sonic Spinball has become that. And the only reason Sonic Spinball has become that is because everyone has forgotten that Sonic 3D Blast is on the Mega Drive. Yeah. Like, everyone forgets that it's there. It basically ends with Sonic and Knuckles. And that is it for Sonic's time on the Mega Drive. You know, the the system was discontinued in 95. We've only just got these last few games here. And Sega were just like, yeah, we're not making new games for it, with the exception of these ones. I did find it interesting, though, when I was reading the Wikipedia page for it, there was a name that really jumped out to me while I was reading through the reception to it. That none other than Ed Lomas is credited on the Wikipedia page for his review of Sonic 3D, where he says it is the first essential Mega Drive game in years. Wow, maybe that's what I want to be. I want to be the Ed Lomas of this podcast, Luke. And he also says that it would uh, appeal to fans of the series. It didn't, at least in this case. And also those who, quote, couldn't be bothered with running right all the time. No, you have to run diagonal right or diagonal left. But who have we got playing this one song for the Mega Drive? I never thought we'd actually get a Mega Drive challenge here in Series 6 either. Britpop, Schmitpop. There is only one good reason to watch Top of the Pops these days, and that's because they now have the best presenter since the heady days of the big hairy conflict, Mr. Dave Lee Travis. 
Please welcome Bear Van Beer. Welcome to the show, Bear. Hey, Bear, you could have, uh, oh, you want me to do both? Okay, Philip, you could have at least put on something sexy. No, 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 I'm, I'm Barbarella caught in Atlantis. All right. Good theme, yeah. I like it. Yeah. Now, the name Bear Van Beer, totally weird, very strange. Why? Um, the hippie parents, Holland, um, it means little bear from the bears. So. Little bear from the bear. I mean, many people called after woodland animals. Um, do you have a brother called Little Squirrel? No, after I, have the squirrel? I have a sister called Britta. Right, and what yeah. does Britta mean? Well, Britta is a, there's a, a, a little, there's a, a Swedish nurse called Britta, and they, there's little books about her, little novels. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. A lot of people have parents like yours, usually they have to visit them in high level maximum security asylums. Oh. What, um, what about, uh, you speak a lot of languages, isn't it? including Mandarin. Can you give us a little flurry of Mandarin there? A little, um, I can say something to you, Mandarin. Yes, please. Yeah, I could say, hmm, Dom, uh, And what does that mean, precisely? Um, it would mean something like, Oh, Dom, let me admire all, all that hair that you have there. Okay, that's something that, like that. That's very yeah. kind of you. And my final question is, uh, obviously, doing Twitter Pops, you meet a lot of famous rock stars. Brian Adams, what does he smell like? Um, he smells of rock and roll. Ah, and that's, it, and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> that's a smell we need to delve more deeper into. Well, here's a blast for the past and someone I'd forgotten about outside of their appearances on Top of the Pops. That's exactly it. We said this when she was in Games Master Magazine, when we had that issue 50 uh, little detour while we waited for the book to arrive. Yeah, Bear Van Beers is, is, is here. A name I've just not thought of at all since around this point in time. And that would be because she just had a very short stint here on our telly boxes and then went back to her home country. Where she's gone on, she's done things, she's had a career, she's had a life and, and good on her. But she Absolutely. was. A top of the pops presenter, she turned up on other TV shows. She kind of fell into this career. And you can tell how much she's kind of stayed in her own little area by how sparse her Wikipedia page is. I found an interview with her that had been quoted from a book where it talks about the fact she was apparently discovered at age 14 while eating satay with her mother and sister. She'd worn glasses since age five and switched to contact lenses two weeks beforehand which may be part of the reason why a photographer literally came up to them whilst they're eating satay and said, do you want to be a model? She said, no, you'll make a lot of money. She said, no. And then he said, you'll travel the world. And at that point, she became interested. It was reading through her website as well that traveling is her thing. Like that is what she's really, really interested in. Like she's quoted here as saying, modeling was never serious for me. I never went on a diet or changed my looks for work. I used the money to study Mandarin Chinese at UCLA, which she actually talks about a little bit in this in the Games Master interview. And then she modeled in Taiwan to practice her Chinese. She, she did the Playboy for the 30th anniversary of the Netherlands version of Playboy. Uh, she said, I, we did my entire Playboy shoot last year in a day, started at 10 a.m. and had Thai takeout while making the final selections at 10 p.m. They paid me a nice amount that my contract does not allow me to divulge. Also, a very nice amount then. Yeah, so it would seem, yeah. So, like, I think her attitudes to it and, like, her whole, you know, you check out her Instagram and stuff, and she's all about, like, you know, no Botox, just bikinis. And she's about positive reinforcements and being a mom. Her website has got lots of magazine covers that she's been on. And they're all, like, mostly, aside from, you know, the Playboy ones and some of the other ones, it's her with her kids. 
just hanging out and just being a mum. And so she's looked like she's had quite a nice little deal of it, really. Lovely to see, because there's been a couple of times where we've looked up celebrity guests for this show and we've really had to tiptoe around the tulips, so to speak, because there's some things that, again, we're two men of an age with beards and opinions, but we probably should, shouldn't be going near. The world does not need our thoughts on some of these issues. But it is lovely to have someone that had their five minutes in the international spotlight and then went, I'm going to keep wandering around the world. I'm going to settle down a little bit. I'm going to build my own career and just be lovely with it. You can also buy her book. She released a book in 2007 that is called Faster Pussycat. And she just said it's a collection of her favourite columns and some of her favourite pictures uh, before her daughter was born. Oh, lovely. Yeah. It's, it's even funny as well because like the link to it on her website is like, you can still find some copies of it here. Or you can buy the digital version. I do love, and it's also from her website, the list of things that she got to do while travelling, saying covering the Calgary Stampede, monster truck racing in Vegas, went homeless for three days in Springfield for a Zen retreat, travelled to Vietnam, interviewed Dolly Parton, flirted with Benicio Del Toro, and went ice climbing in Alaska. I've been so lucky. Those last three are very, very, very broad strokes. It's like Dolly Parton, cool. I'd be terrified of flirting with Benicio Del Toro. He just terrifies me in general. And then ice climbing. Yeah. Is it escalating in danger? Interview Dolly Parton. Very safe. Flirting with Benicio Del Toro. Mm. Ice climbing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've played as ice climbers on Super Smash Brothers in a tournament before, and that is, that's quite a risk to take. So I think that really is the, the, the highest point of, of terror for, for Bert Van Beers here. In your film journalist career have you ever flirted with Benicio Del Toro I have not actually interviewed Benicio Del Toro either so I've not had the opportunity to do so if I do get the opportunity I'll, I'll put it as a, a, a thing to do what try flirting with him <laughs> some of those junkies get a bit boring maybe he'd really enjoy it I could just imagine the aftermath with his agent or something going oh how was the press junket and he's like it was all right it, this guy to the beard turned up and I think he was flirting with me I'm not sure. It was very, very odd. He does that. Uh, he does that Games Master podcast. You know the one. It was him. <laughs> okay, more unbelievable than you interviewing and flirting with Benicio del Toro is Benicio del Toro going <laughs> that Games Master podcast. It's a regular <laughs> listen. It's on his rotation. To show how successful as well, uh, Van Beers is doing with her modelling. Uh, her latest blog post was from April of this year with a uh, a modeling spread that she did for FHM in the Netherlands. So good on her. Congrats to her as well. I think it's amazing. And she definitely gets a warm welcome here on the Games Master set because Dom kisses both hands. At her choice as well. She's like, no, 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 no. You don't just kiss the one hand. You kiss both hands. You kiss both rings. <laughs> I'm European. Dom's, Dom does kind of pick on her dress sense a bit, going, oh, I thought you'd dress up a bit more sexy. And to be honest, she looks perfectly fine, but I do love her immediate responses. I'm Barbarella trapped in Atlantis. And I just thought that is a film I would watch. I yeah. would watch a Barbarella sequel of Barbarella in Atlantis. Bert Van Beers is, is great on this because she's game for it. Like she's having a, a wonderful, wonderful time on this show. Like she is an absolute delight, not just in this interview, but in the, the challenge as well. That line of, I would have expected to at least dress sexy, could have really thrown someone else. But she just rolls with the punches. She knows exactly what sort of show this is. She gets it. And it's part of that thing, you know, we had this when we chatted with Dom a while back. He was like, you know, always checked with people beforehand what they were comfortable with and what they weren't. 
and yeah, she's just totally game for it. And it's it's quite nice as well. And Dom questions the name, not very politely, going, Bear, that's a bit weird, isn't it? And she's like, well, hippie parents, it means little bear from the bears. You can't argue with it. And Dom says, well, do you have a brother called Squirrel? Chortle, chortle, chortle. And she's like, no, but I do have a sister called Britta. And I'm like, ooh, after the water filters. But no, apparently named after a Swedish nurse. Little books and all that. And this is where she shows off some of that Mandarin that she uh, learned via her uh, modelling that we talked about earlier. And they do the the joke about the text saying something else and then, you know, translating it to something else. Because what she says is, you'll have heard it in the clip there, it says on screen that Dom is bald. And so when Dom's like, oh, cool, what, what did that say then? She was like, oh, I talked about your luscious hair that you've got on top of your head. And Dom obviously clearly knows what's going on. She's like, oh, oh, that's lovely. Thank you very much. See, it's always fine when you're laughing at yourself. He's not punching down. He's punching himself in the face. Yeah, he's punching himself in the face. Quality entertainment. And the killing my character back down is Dave Perry. Dave, is it true that Sonic the Hedgehog was based on your early life? Yes, I think it's the quest for gold and the fact that he's so sharp. And nothing to do with the fact that you like running around wearing nothing but red trainers. Um, no, 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 keep that quiet. Okay then, uh, have you got any tips for Bear on this? Well, basically, she's just obviously got to pick up the five flickies, and it's very, very tough. The main thing is obviously the old Sonic thing, and that is as long as you've got one ring, you can't be killed. She's got to make sure she's always got one ring in possession. We've got Dave Perry in the booth, and it turns out, and I did not know this, that the origin of Sonic the Hedgehog was actually based on a lot of Dave's early career. And Dave's, Dave says yes, because it's about his quest for gold and because he's so sharp. And Dom pops that bubble by saying, nothing to do with the fact you like to run around wearing nothing but red trainers. Dave literally sighs at that point. And this is you know, more of that like, yeah, Dave has realised that perhaps the gig is up for him or it's time his game master's coming to an end. But he literally almost like looks down and be like, yeah, okay, fine, whatever, Dominic. Now, okay, I'd not been in that situation. I'd not been working in that position. And we obviously, we've gone through the book, yada, yada, yada. Episode nine happened and we've discussed that. I thought it was actually very quick-witted. And I thought Dave's response was funny. Dom's response was funny. It actually worked really well as a bit of comedy. And it's annoying because we've had situations where Dom has thrown a really soft ball to Dave and he's just let it drop. And here he caught it, but just didn't roll with it. You know, he didn't, he didn't, yeah. he didn't lob it straight back. He's just went, well, oh, well, okay. Okay, fine. Can we talk about the game now? Tips for Bear, pick up the five flickies. It's tough, but it's the old Sonic thing. Make sure you have one ring. And as long as you have at least one ring, you can't be killed. We're playing the Rusty Ruin Zone. And my first note here is, man, you can really see why Sonic just doesn't work in 3D, can't you? It's a combination of two things. It's that, and Bear Van Beers is not very good at this game. And what we have here is, Quite an appalling challenge in terms of gameplay as Bear Van Beers runs into Badniks and loses her rings and then manages to collect one and then runs into Badniks and then runs away from Badniks, eventually kills some of them, but doesn't collect the Flickies and runs away from the Flickies and then runs into some more Badniks and then apparently just gets lost and she doesn't really know where she is or where she's going. And all the while, Dominic is there just going like, this is a terrible display of, of games playing here. And Vampires just shouts. I would say being generous to yeah. at this point, Dave, this is probably the worst display we've seen for quite some time. It oh, is, and you've got to remember this is... Oh, shut up! While he's playing, while she's playing, 
it's both brilliant and terrible at the same time. I love that Dom is like like just going, this is the worst thing we've had in years and years. But that's not the bit that made me laugh the most. The bit that made me laugh the most is quite low in the mix, quite quiet, quite subtle, is Dave Perry just going, She's gonna die. To be honest, I'm not sure it was meant to be picked up. I think it was just kind of muttering to production of like, oh, Christ, she's going to die. But it was just that dejected of, no, the hopes and dreams. She's going to die. Yeah, Dave Perry, I want to see some games playing on this show, but no, it is not to be here in this challenge. I think she sort of has fun playing it, although it is quite a frustrating game. But her just chatting throughout it and like talking back at the game and shouting at Dominic, I think is really, really funny. I think the interplay between those two is really, really good. And it, it got me thinking of like, when was the last time we had a an actual challenge on an actual game that was this bad that Dominic sort of outwardly said, that is actively terrible. Part of me thinks there's one in this series, but the one that jumped to my head was Anton Deck in series four. Yes. Playing Street Racer, because they were just told like, that is, act- you're going into the into the pit essentially, because that was so bad because they were dreadful at the game. I have a lot of like aspects of that, because it's not just that she fails the challenge, she fails it spectacularly so. From a gameplay point of view, this is the Ashley Pask Award type level for bad challenges. But she's saved by the fact she's Bear Van Beers, and she is immensely entertaining. It's like Vic Reeves. That's what I was about to say. It's Vic Reeves. Terrible challenge, great celebrity. So... Actually, I think last week's challenge is more likely to be of the Ashley Pask variety than this one, because this one is saved by her being entertaining and by her just turning to camera at the end of the challenge and going, I never want to hear the word flickies ever again. (laughs) She even gets a sad trombone noise. I'll be honest, as a Sonic fan, I don't want to hear the term flickies again either. Fuck those little creatures. I never ever want to hear the word flicky ever again. You weren't too comfortable with the flickies. There, you only had three at the end instead of five. There, what happened? I didn't like the flickies and I didn't like the guy in the sneakers. I think you find he's called Sonic. Yeah, that, that Sonic guy, that hedgehog. Yeah, yeah I couldn't what? identify with him. That was the problem. Uh huh. Yeah. And was it? I'm mean, actually really good at computer games. Yes. Yeah. Did you derive any kind of happiness from your visit to the show today then? Did I learn anything? No, did you have any happiness at all there? It was so good seeing you in your green suit. That was the answer we were looking for, Bea. Thank you very much for coming on. Please keep us um, up to speed with the continuing smell of Brian Adams, okay? I don't like flickies. I don't like that guy in the sneakers. And Dave looks dejected, but no, she's talking about Sonic. She just couldn't identify with him. <laughs> then she just, ex- out of like nowhere, she explains, I'm good at games. I'm actually really good at video games. That's just a bad one. Don't judge me on that game and that performance alone. I bet you if it had been Sonic Spinball or Mean Bean Machine. Yeah, had a grand old time. I bet you she's really good at a Tetris-like. Yeah, I reckon so. I reckon she's probably like really good at a lot of games. It's just this is not one of them. I wonder, it makes me think that she didn't actually practice it in the green room that this might have been one of her first goes on it. Did she get any happiness from her visit to the show today? Yeah, well, she saw Dominic in a green suit. That was great. Dom had nothing to give to that when he's like, nope, that's the answer we're looking for. It is a bad challenge in terms of games playing, but it's a great challenge in terms of entertainment and her being entertaining and the interplay between her and Dominic. It makes me kind of wish, you know, I don't. I hate to say this, I wish Dave wasn't on commentary. If we've had a, a Kirk on there or a Rick on there, they would have had such a laugh with it. 
and really enjoyed the fact that she was doing so poorly. It would have been a proper chuckle fest. Every generation has its sex symbols. In the 80s, there was Simon Le Bon. In the 90s, there's me. And for men in the 50s, it was screen goddess Marilyn Monroe. Like most film stars, her career came to an end when she died. But now, fans of the sex siren at the University of Geneva want to change that. Using the latest computer technology, they're creating a virtual version of the actress, which they hope could star in a whole new series of films. And it's not just Marlin. The same technology could be used to bring any actor back to life, even Tom Cruise. So soon death will no longer mean you can't appear in that Hollywood blockbuster, although it may make it hard for you to pick up the paycheck. But to round off this episode, we have a an interesting feature here, because this is about creating simulation versions of dead actors actors that are no longer with us or personalities that are no longer with us to feature in movies so that we can have movies starring marilyn monroe for 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 years to come and here in 1997 it's like a well that's probably not gonna happen but you know you fast forward 20 odd years and it's now here and i've been to multiple movies where dead actors have been in things I think the closest direct comparison to this would probably be Rogue One. Yeah, it's, Rogue One's a great one of that, yeah. Because uh, Leia's at the end of it. It's Carrie Fisher's at the end of the movie as well. Yeah, but that, that's there a blink and a miss it. With Tarkin, they were trying to make it, this is a feature character. Yeah. This is, this is a big moment. And I... Okay, let's just get this out of the way. This looks categorically awful. In 1997, oh, yeah. it was pretty impressive. Because it's 1997. They were having to make this shit up as they went along. Hair physics did not exist. You had a helmet for hair or you had the stuff they were making, which they said was replicating growing of hair. It wasn't. It was more like creating a wig. But it still gave some natural-ish. It looks amazing, but it's got real like Smackdown 3 creator character hair feel to it. It's not quite as impressive as when we get into uh, Final Fantasy Spirits Within. Each like strand of hair was individually animated, so that sort of gave it much more of a realistic flow. And you're right, like this doesn't look great. Like I don't think Pixar have got anything to worry about. But also, these are just these are students at university that are just trying this and seeing what they can get. It's got some like you know huge uncanny valley going on, and these like dead eyes and mouth movements that don't match. But it's also it's 1997. Some students pretty impressive really and yeah we've got this bunch of university students in geneva trying to recreate marilyn monroe which some success kind of looks like marilyn monroe also recreating humphrey bogart okay it's a humphrey i'm not sure which one the the, the marilyn monroe looks more like the humphrey bogart than, than humphrey bogart looks like humphrey bogart yeah, it's almost like that there were a lot of people working on this project and they all wanted to be measuring up Marilyn. None of them wanted to be measuring up Bogart. And you can tell that because one of the sequences within this is is Marilyn Monroe having her clothes stripped down as she runs away. The main person behind this is Nadia Magnet Thalman, scientist robotician, founder and head of Mirror Lab in Geneva, and she was behind a lot of this. She was behind the film, the actual film that these clips are from, called Rendezvous in Montreal, which was about an affair 
between Marilyn Monroe and Humphrey Bogart. Marilyn, come with me. Let's go back on Earth, okay? Marilyn, where are you? Come on, darling. Hey, Bucky, if you insist. Rendezvous, Marche Bonscura, Montreal, tonight, 10 o'clock. And this film's been around a while. It premiered in May 1987. Even then, it caught some press. Excerpts were shown on different television channels that week because these were considered the first virtual actors of their kind. And it did the festival circuit. It was uh, shown at the Hiroshima International Animation Festival, Montreal World Film Festival, the Women Film Festival in Hollywood, Rio de Janeiro, Monte Carlo Television Festival, Stuttgart Festival of Animated Films, and went kind of on rotation at 1987's Expotech. So... It's strange to now see it almost 10 years later. This does feel a little bit time filler. Like, this isn't breaking news, but it is news. It's a shame as well, because we talked about D recently. You love the D. And I love the D. And the, the lead actor of D was designed to be a virtual actor. So, like, you could do this feature, but do it about that instead as opposed to as you say sort of like create more of this sort of time filling thing and it, it but it does really you know fall into that category of what dom said at the start of the series of being an entertainment show that's about technology not specifically just video game i mean they came an awful long way because 1984 they show us some clips which is basic wireframe animation and then we get to this point where we have cgi marilyn with her cgi shadows walking past a couple of men in the real world who stop and turn around and do the double take. Amazingly, not in horror, more in, hey, check out those pixels. And as you said, we get that clip of her clothes literally being blown off, which, of course, they included that. It's Games Master. Oh, yeah. I wrote in my notes here. They strip her nude. That's a bit weird. I mean, Games Master wasn't responsible for it, so I'll give them a pass on that. But of course, if you get sent a tape with that on, Games Master are going to go, yeah, we're going to use that. We know our target audience. The possibilities are endless. Hollywood producers are actually considering using them alongside real actors in films. But then again, Americans are twice as stupid as Geneva men. And we get a weird combination of CGI Marilyn and a real award ceremony accepting a very wonky-looking award and either winking at the camera or glitching or both. It's funny, isn't it? Like Dom talks about how Hollywood producers are starting to consider uh, using this. But, you know, you mentioned earlier this film came out in 1987. Around 1993, because of the success of this, they were having conversations about doing it. So even by this point, like, Hollywood has been talking about using digitized deceased actors for a number of years. And it's, it's kind of wild then when you think about the fact that, as we mentioned earlier, Rogue One is kind of one of the, the biggest examples I could think of that's used for a long-standing thing. There's also Carrie Fisher in that. There's another movie that, that you and I both love that also features it pretty heavily in, in its final act. But that was, you know, only a handful of years ago. 
it's it's been a, clearly something that has been in in Hollywood's mind's eye for a long, 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 long time. It's only just really now the technology has sort of caught up to the idea that has been floating around since the early nineties. Guarantee you, one of the people who'd have been very interested in this would have been Spielberg and George Lucas. Spielberg would have probably loved this idea in 93. And it's funny you mentioned George Lucas because, relatedly, James Earl Jones has officially retired from being Darth Vader, but has signed his voice likeness and kind of basically said, Lucasfilm can use the archive recordings, all of the voice work I've done as Darth Vader, to create future Darth Vader voice roles. He's basically gone. I give them permission to continue me voicing this role. To be honest, this topic, I don't know how people felt about it at the time. Probably because it didn't look very convincing. People weren't taking it too seriously. Now it's a very, very hot topic. It's considered ghoulish. People are worried it's going to take work away from real actors. I, th- I think as well, there's the, the idea that where do you draw the line? And, and, and I sort of see it from that example. Like I remember when Rogue One came out, there was some backlash towards it because of the, the Grand Motaka, but also because of the, the Carrie Fisher stuff. It was so recent since her passing that people found it quite uncomfortable to watch. My general thought on it is, I didn't think Grand Moff Tarkin worked. I just think they tried to reach too far. Carrie Fisher, I just think it was too soon. It really was. It was weird. I remember being in the pictures and seeing that and being like, that hits me hard, that. And then we come to what you alluded to, and I'm, I think I'm just going to mention it. I think we have it, to. Yeah. Harold Ramis in Ghostbusters Afterlife. I know some people who I like a lot and I respect who did not like it, who thought it was terrible, who thought it was ghoulish, who thought it was disrespectful. And they are entirely entitled to that opinion. And I have my opinion. But what I look at is what did the Ramis family think? What was their part in it? Because at the end of the day, it is horribly sad that kind of he never got to be that role with those guys again. And I thought the work they did on Ghostbusters Afterlife was technically amazingly well done. If you look at the process they went through to kind of create that digital Egon, and I'm not going to say that digital Harold Ramis, because actually, if you look at what Harold Ramis would have looked like at that age, it did not look like Egon looked. They aged Egon. They aged the character. I thought it worked really, really well. And I cried mm-hmm. because those four guys were a massive part of my childhood. And also it came so freshly after we'd just been through COVID and lockdown. And I just wanted something comforting, something familiar. And the image of those four together, albeit with one of them in a very spectral form, it gave me that. Yeah. If the family are directly involved, and if it's not just taking the role away from someone else, if it's not stopping someone, because you wouldn't recast Egon Spengler. Not really. I I think it's fine. I don't think it should be a case of we end up with a movie where all of the actors are CGI and we get Humphrey Bogart and Marilyn Monroe having an affair. I, I think that's the step too far. Yeah, if you make if you make an ensemble movie with nothing but digitized simulations of characters, or actors rather. If it's a case where it allows you to complete a story or it allows you to give closure to a character or a series and the family are involved, they are consenting and they are, I guess, cared for, I think. Yeah. I I think that was it for me with with Afterlife because I knew that the Ramis estate were involved. And like when I 
the the film started and you have that's the you know the, the the stand-in for egon and it's all in shadow and stuff but you know who it is but you know through the sort of mannerisms and the way that it's shot and the way that they put that actor together i did have this real profound sadness that it sucks that ramus isn't here for this it really was like i had this sort of emotional reaction of like it sucks that ramus isn't here so when you have that moment at the end when all four of them are, are there it's almost this sort of cathartic thing of like well i did get that I kind of, I, I did get that moment, albeit, you know, it is through the, the, the magic of CGI, but I totally understand why some people would feel uncomfortable about it because I have felt uncomfortable about it with Carrie Fisher in Rogue One. So I, I, I totally, totally get it. And I understand. I think the line is sort of like, you know, where it becomes problematic is when they don't go to the effort of contacting the estate or speaking with the family or working with the family on this and just sort of take the, well, we can do it, so why not? You know, it's the uh, the Ian Malcolm line of... Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. That's kind of where I sit with it. I think that it it can be good, but it's it, there's that pause of, yeah, but Hollywood's not always going to be this kind, is it? Like, you're not always going to get this sort of filmmaker or these sorts of filmmakers tackling these things. You will just get people to be like, well, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do this because I can do, because I've got the ability to do so. And that's where I think it becomes a problem. But to see this in 1997, to know where we are now in 2022, and to have things where actors are either actively consenting to their likeness, even only in voice being used after their passing, or the other way, deliberately making steps to stop their likeness being used after their passing. I think that this is only going to get more controversial as time goes on. Oh, yeah. Because we're reaching a point where more and more icons of, I guess, kind of the silver screen, particularly of the 80s and 90s, are reaching a point where they can't act or where they're passing away. But that desire, that kind of mixture of nostalgia and familiarity, the drive is still there. There's been an advert recently with Bruce Willis in it. I don't know if you heard about that, where they digitally constructed a young Bruce Willis. And that's caused a whole bunch of controversy. Well, there was even a, a story relatively recently that, you know, Dan Castanella and Julie Kavner and Harry Shearer will at some point not be voicing The Simpsons. Like they have been doing it since day dot, like since the late 80s, they have been doing the, the voices. Yardley Smith, you know, they've all been doing the voices for The Simpsons. At some point, they will not be able to do it. Harry Shearer barely, like he just records everything from home and is not got the passion for it anymore. They will retire at some point, but there probably will still be the Disney money to make more Simpsons. So what do you do? Do you recast? Or, as it has been suggested, like they've recorded probably every word under the sun in, in every form of the dictionary. So you can just auto-simulate it, and you don't need, you don't need them anymore. You've got everything on tape. You've got everything recorded. You can just use that instead. Mate, the hundreds of hours of raw recordings we've got of us recording Games Master. Hey, maybe you're listening to an AI-constructed podcast <laughs> right now. Exactly. Like, that's the, that's the thing there. That, and I think that's where it does take away work from other people. Or it sort of raises the question of, like, well, do we need to keep making The Simpsons? Like, should The Simpsons end when they step down. But then again, I've always kind of been against that idea as well. I once wrote an article for Flickr and Myth about like, because I remember there were people who said they should have stopped making the Muppets after Jim Henson passed. I was like, well, yeah, but like Henson wasn't the only person 
who was making the Muppets. Like there were other people working on that. It'd be like arguing that you shouldn't have made any Disney movies after Walt passed. Personally, and I think maybe James Earl Jones as Darth Vader is an exception to this. I would rather see recastings than AI voices for cartoons. And the only thing reason I think with James Earl Jones and Darth Vader, I don't mind it is because what well, I mean. They have already had multiple people play Darth Vader. James Earl Jones has not voiced Vader in everything. But James Earl Jones has stated himself, whilst he is still alive, that he is fine with this happening. And I think that's a case where, fine. If he's fine with it happening, let it run. Because let's be honest, it's not like Darth Vader is known for his massive monologues and soliloquies. I mean, he's a man of few words. If if Dan and Julie Kavner and Harry Shearer and all of them said, yeah, it's fine, Disney, while we're still here, do your AI constructions. You know, we'll, we'll happily take the royalties because you know they get their math, they get their nice Simpsons checks anyway. So we'll happily take the royalties for it. It's a different conversation, then, isn't it? As opposed to like if Disney just decided we don't need you anymore because we can just do this through computers. I love how there's a number of times when we're just like we are not the people that should be having this conversation, and yet watch us drop kick this hornet's nest right into the middle of a podcast about a TV show from 1997. <laughs> Back to Rendezvous in Montreal. This thing's weird. Yeah, it's, it's still weird. out there. You can still find copies of it. Yeah, it's a funny old feature. Okay, you can keep watching this channel if you like. Now I'm sure it's something fantastic on afterwards. But we are quite literally going to go. Though on next week's show, we have the very lovely Tracy Shaw from Coronation Street as our special guest. While you think about her, also think about this question. If every house in Britain had a bear van beer, what would you use yours for? Good night. Ash, if you had a Bear Van Beers in your household, what would you use yours for? I'd go through all the games I had until I found the one she was good at, and then we'd play them against each other. I'm hoping it'd be a Tetris or a Puzzle Bobble type situation. I was just trying to confuse because I wrote my notes here and I just shortened it to BVB, just sort of misread it as DVD. And so maybe that's what I would use my BVB for. You know, she can pick whatever movie I'm going to watch that evening. That's a bit demeaning, mate. <laughs> she, she can watch him as well. Oh, oh well, that's fine then. I just like the idea that you kept her in a cupboard. You just open the cupboard and it's like, which movie? <laughs> she picks up Freddy versus Jason and you're like, thank you. Thank Close you. The back, door. back into the cupboard you go. But that's going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, Ash, what did you make of episode 12? This is another pretty strong episode. The feature, whilst weird and occasionally slightly unpleasant, was at least interesting. I mean, I thought we were mostly done with recording this episode and then I don't know what it will be in the edit, but we've just rattled on for an extra 20, 25 minutes on virtual actors. Bear Van Beers, fucking car wreck of a challenge, but immensely entertaining doing so. And speaking of car wrecks, the Ridge Racer start. What a fun challenge that is and such a unique challenge, something that you don't see. You don't, you can't go to your retro arcades for the most part and see that Ridge Racer setup. There will be less and less of them each year. At least one of the cars that's been used in one of those machines has actually been retroactively converted into a track car. It had an engine put in it and was made road legal. So the circuit boards are dying. The hardware is dying. It's great that we've got a proper example of this thing in use and documented in a challenge. I thought this was a great episode. I was really, really happy with this episode. This is two back-to-back episodes that I've just gone, that was great. It's interesting you point out the Ridge Racer thing because you couple that with Resident Evil 1.5, which at that point was still Resident Evil 2. And it just feels like, wow, what an interesting time capsule of an episode we've got here. Because all the other videos of 
Ridge Racer full scale, if you go and search them on YouTube, it is just people filming on their phones what the arcade machine looks like. This is actual video captured of the game itself and a kid playing it and seeing what it was at that space in time. And the same with 1.5. Like This is an in-moment report on what we all thought Resident Evil 2 was going to be. So I think as a time capsule thing, it's fascinating. You then couple that with that final feature. So there's just so much interesting stuff within this episode. And then both challenges are great for various different reasons. First challenge is great because it's a really good story being told and it's a brilliant little piece of history. The second one is an absolute disaster, but she's great and Dom's great, which makes the challenge great. Like It all comes together to be a very, very good episode. I think, because I, I, I loved everything about this, this is in the 90s for me. Same. So I, I don't think it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say 92%, I think. That's kind of like my gut reaction to it. I was 91 I was close. It was definitely above a 90 and 91. I just really enjoyed this episode. The spectacle, the humour was there. I wish Dave had given a bit more back. There was just a chance to play. And I know, you know, I'm not sure Dom was necessarily looking to play, but I think Dave could have played it up a bit more. But obviously, we now know a lot more about what was going on behind the scenes at that point. But there were lots of great jokes. They landed. The kid was great. The challenge was great everything just about this episode clicked into place and it was a great old time i'm only going to give it the extra percent because mega drive was featured on it uh, uh, probably our last ever mega drive challenge but i think that's going to do it for this episode of under consultation thank you all for listening you all rule and you can find us on social media on twitter at under console pod on instagram at under dot console and you can send us an email to feedback at under and if you want to give us a bit of real-time feedback a bit of real-time interaction you can do so over on our discord details of which can be found in the show notes and on social media and you can support this podcast monetarily over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod where at the five pound level you'll get next week's episode one week early and ad free but you'll also get access to ucp extra which is this show format but about other tv shows in the 80s and 90s and our monthly community show under console nation back to the 10 pound level though you get a little bit extra ash what do you get at the 10 pound level they got our golden joystick wagglers mug Stuffed with sweeties, trading cards, stickers, badges, all sorts of goodies, which we hurl through the ether directly at your face. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthol, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Super Sexy, David Fisher, Simon, Sean, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boo, Mark, Link, Gavin, Ian Williams, Ian Roberts, I Am Cheadle, Harriet Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brantz, David Palmer, Chrissy Two Sticks, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andrew, Adam and Andy. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time for episode 13 of series six. Take care, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 